My name's Tom Jennings, this is the 24 Frames cast, and in this episode I'll be taking a look at the recent Maradona documentary, as well as a look at the Blu-ray release of the 1948 film The Snake Pit. Before I get to The Snake Pit, however, just a couple of housekeeping issues. Um, number one, if you live in the Manchester area, um, a film I made, well, a short film I made, um, for a charity, we'll be playing at the home cinema. Um, that's going to be before the release of the new film, Blinded by the Light. Um, the film uh, that I made is called The Record Collector. So if you do live in Manchester, if you go and watch Blinded by the Light, that will be a film. My film will be on before that, so I hope you enjoy it. It was certainly um, a bit of a lesson, really, um, in making that film. It was actually shot two years ago. Um, we showed it to the client in question and they did not like it at all and they did not do anything with it. Um, so it kind of sat on a hard drive doing absolutely nothing. The right person happened to see it and uh, yeah, it seems to have got a really good um, reaction and a good a good following to it and the creative director at home actually picked it up and he sort of saw, somehow managed to see it and uh, wanted to put it on so we're all very proud of that so once again the film's called The Record Collector and um, once it's kind of done through its um, theatrical release I will uh, <laughs> theatrical release Christ what am I talking about um, once it's been on I will uh, post a link to it or probably on Twitter or something like that so people can have a look and make up your minds for yourself um, second point as well actually this is a small uh, a slightly small issue um I've been recently, I suppose over the past couple of years actually, uh, renovating my house and I kind of have found that, that I uh, wanted to fill the walls with pictures and film memorabilia and all that kind of stuff. And I've actually been uh, picking up posters online, normally like one sheet posters, originals and things like that. Um, I was wondering if anyone has any websites where they kind of buy these types of posts from. I've been using eBay, um, but I was wondering if any listeners know of any decent places to pick up artwork of that nature, if you could forward it on to me. Because um, it seems a bit of a minefield. I've been stung a couple of times um, by picking up things like reproductions of uh, film posters. And these are really very poor quality. And I've actually, I've actually managed to find the website where most of these are coming from it's um a website called cine material and it's it's basically an online digital archive of movie posters and what i've actually found was a lot of sellers on ebay are basically taking um images from these and then making posters ranging on sizes from sort of like maxi size through a1 up to a4 and all that kind of thing and a lot of the ones I've actually kind of originally started buying were absolutely terrible. And you can see why, like the files themselves, you can actually download these posters from this site. And downloads themselves are sometimes like 1.2 megabytes for a poster that's meant to fill up an AO uh, size. And just the quality is not there. So I've kind of gone into buying originals. Um, eBay has proved quite a good source. There has been um, a couple of issues with sellers who have kind of... I think probably not got what they were hoping for and then cancelled the sale. But it does seem a little bit of a minefield, to, to, to be brutally honest with you. Well, I have been picking up a few decent ones. So if anyone has any decent websites or knows of any dealers, you know, send them my way. So it would be greatly appreciative. And also, um, if you want to help the show, I have off been offered in the past. People are saying if I want donations or anything, which I've always declined and I don't need. As I've said before a couple of times on, this ep on the podcast, um, it pretty much pays for itself. It's, the, the overheads are absolutely tiny. However, how you can help me 
is by leaving reviews on wherever you can leave podcast review. I suppose iTunes is the one. I mean, ratings and reviews, you can do that for, for both the 24 Frames cast and the Master Cinema cast. I would be greatly appreciative. I am willing to offer a bribe to help this, which I'll be doing every month. So I'm going to be giving away a copy of the Snake Pit Blu-ray. It is Region B locked, so be do be aware of that um, if you are. I'm going to enter this from abroad. All you have to do is leave a review of the show on iTunes and the first person who sends me a link to their review, I will send you a copy of the Blu-ray. Obviously, I would hope that you leave a positive review and I know, yes, this, this is a blatant bribe, but I do need to get um, some more likes up there. It does certainly help with new subscriptions, so I would be greatly appreciative to you all if you could do that. So, without any further ado, I will get on and take a look at The Snake Pit. The Snake Pit is based on the Mary Jane Ward story that created such heated discussion when it appeared as a novel. Because of its dynamic realism, this book of the month selection instantly became a bestseller and held that distinction month after month. By the time it was reprinted in the Reader's Digest, it had fascinated and entertained more than 15 million readers, and it is still one of the most widely read stories of our day. In keeping with a story of such popularity and significance, The Snake Pit comes to the screen with one of the finest casts that has ever been assembled. Listen carefully to the beginning of Antonio Livtak's The Snake Pit and you might notice something as that 20th Century Fox logos. And you might not really be aware of it at first, but if you are probably familiar with Star Wars, you will notice, or at least hear, that you cannot hear that familiar 20th Century Fox fanfare. And the reason you can't actually hear it is because the filmmakers are actually telling you something in advance about this film. It's making a point. This film is going to serve a social purpose. And it was very much in keeping with producer Daryl F. Zanuck's vision for 20th Century Fox. Zanuck was committed to not just make Fox about the purveyor being the purveyor of lavish spectacle. He had a commitment to using the medium for the betterment of social value. Now, Ilya Kazan's gentle agreement in 1947 that he produced tackled anti-Semitism, Pinky and No Way Out would also take on racism. And with The Snake Pit, this is a film that would look at the topic of mental health. Now, the timing of this Blu-ray release could not be any more relevant. Mental health is top of the news cycles, with celebrities and social media being the preferred mode by which we hear about it. It has promoted a huge change in attitude about the perception of mental health and how we can deal with it better as a society. And it's a good thing. I had my own brush with mental health issues earlier this year when I began to suffer a series of panic attacks and I was unable to get back to normal, prompting some time off work and entering a voluntary series of counselling sessions in order to be able to better deal with these attacks. I was lucky in terms of how my employer, my friends and family supported me and many sadly aren't, which is to say there is much work to be done. And part of this is what attracted me to seeing the snake pit. And in keeping with the ethos of this podcast, I thought it was a prime candidate to review. Mary Jane Ward's 1946 semi-autobiographical novel forms the basis of the story. Ward herself had spent eight months in a psychiatric hospital 
during which time she received electroshock therapy and scalding baths, as well as the little-known practice of psychoanalysis to help deal with her issues. The Snake Pit was based on her experiences and was released to great critical and commercial success and was quickly picked up by Fox with Olivia de Havilland playing the lead character of Virginia and Antol Livtak directing a screenplay by Frank Partos, Millen Brand and Arthur Lawrence. Other credits on the film would include music by Alfred Newman, cinematography by Leo Tover and ed editing by Dorothy Spencer whose editor's filmography beggars belief that includes to name but a few Lifeboat, My Darling Clementine, Cleopatra, Von Ryan's Express and Earthquake. Liftak demanded that the cast and crew attend lectures on mental illness as well as visit various hospitals and institutions with de Havilland throwing herself into the role, witnessing electroshock therapy treatments and partaking in long therapy sessions with patients to better understand the complexities and challenges faced by parent, patients and staff alike. Zanuck recognised the importance of the film to serve a social value and he very much put his money where his mouth was. The Snake Pit had a budget of almost $2.5 million and that was a huge sum of money for the time. And it seems even more of a pun if you think about the subject matter behind the snake pit. And the money is there to be seen on screen in both the bigger and smaller details that create a hugely impressive visual palette. The opening shot of the film, however, is slightly more grounded in achieving the effect of trying to strive for realism in the film. Do you know where you are, Mrs Cunningham? Where is he? As if he were crouching behind me. Why am I afraid to look at him? You know, don't you, Mrs. Cunningham? In New York, of course. I used to live in Evanston, Illinois. That's where I was born. It's right near Chicago. Did you sleep well last night, Mrs. Cunningham? How are you today? Very well, thank you. Who is he? And why all those questions? As if he were testing me. Do you hear voices? You think I'm deaf? Of course, I hear yours. It's hard to keep on being civil when they ask you such naive questions. But who is that? And what's happened to him? We're introduced to Harvard as Virginia, who is in the mental hospital, sat on a bench talking to another patient. Her appearance is one of the small details. On first glance, she looks okay, but you begin to see the smaller signs. She has ladders in her tights, holes in her shirt. It is these small details that tend to matter for me in films. It creates a kind of trust whereby the filmmakers are showing their dedication to the cause of presenting a reality to me. And the snake pit is full of these types of touches. It might not necessarily be completely realistic, but it is enough to make me believe in the reality of the film. And the film does a great job of establishing its locations. We see every aspect of contemporary health, mental health treatment the hideous scenes of electroshock therapy, the steam baths, the vast offices, the bureaucracy, the cells and the toilets and the communal areas. And I think it's also worth noting that the film does not show the true awfulness of what would have been experienced at the time. The toilets, for example, in the snake pit are quite clean and well kept. And in the novel, they're actually described in horrendous details. It was actually the results of the censors intervening that they couldn't go for realism in this department. But you do get a sense as to the scale of the problem, multitude of different patient needs. Well, darling, I'm worried about the way you haven't been sleeping. Last night again, I saw you... Virginia, darling, don't you think you'd better see a doctor? It's such a beautiful day. 
Yes, but... Almost too beautiful for November. What do you mean, November? Are you kidding? What do you think it is? May. May 12th. Where do you see that? Well, here you can see for yourself. It's an old newspaper. Can't you see? It's torn. Virginia, what is it? That's this morning's newspaper. It isn't. It can't be. Virginia, why don't you get dressed? We'll see a doctor. Doctor? Yes. My head hurts. Robert, there's something the matter with my head. Come on, darling. Let me help you. Who are you? Why do you torture me? Why do you lie to me? Virginia, what's the matter? Don't you know me? I'm Robert, your husband. Let me Robert. go. Let me go. Virginia, what's the matter? Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. Virginia, don't you know I love you? Love me? No, you can't make me love you. You can't make me belong to you. You can't. Virginia. I can't love you. I can't love anybody. I can't. <laughs> Through the lens of today's knowledge, it's perhaps easy to see Virginia's journey through the films being a little too simplistic. The Snake Pit uses multiple timelines to tell her story throughout the therapy she goes through with her assigned therapist, Dr. Kick. As a child, we learn of her trauma dealing with the death of her father. Then as a teenager, there's an incident whereby someone died after she asked them to do a favour. A picture of Freud hanging in Kick's office gives a good indication where the film is drawing inspiration from. And of course, it's all could seem a tad dated as the advancements that we have made today. However, and more importantly, in the context of this film, this all works well cinematically. The arc of the story is to essentially get Virginia cured, and she says she can leave the hospital and be with husband Robert. She, she is subjected to electroshock therapy, scenes which I found particularly hard to watch, and rather baffling steam baths. I'm not quite sure what the thought was behind those. I'm thirsty. Uh, 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 who's next? All right, Evelyn. Virginia, you'd better come over here. You're next. Go ahead, honey. It's your turn. I'm afraid. I'm terribly afraid. We're ready, Evelyn. Come on, Virginia. You're going now. Come on. What are you doing here, Grace? I just came along with Virginia. How many more left, Miss Davis? Twenty-three, Doctor. Virginia Cunningham from three. First treatment. Is this the patient you told me about this morning? Yes. Yeah. All right, Virginia, get on this table. Come on, I said to lie down on this table. How are you today, Mrs. Cunningham? You're going to electrocute me. Was my crime so great? No, Mrs. Cunningham, nobody's being electrocuted. Dr. Summer and I are just trying to make you well. We're your friends. All right, Mr. Pat, Mary, get on this side. Evelyn. They dare to kill me without a trial. If I say I demand a lawyer, they'll have to do something. It's in the Constitution. Now, just relax, honey. Three against one. It isn't fair. Yes, I'd better call a lawyer right away. I want... Miss Davis, I want to hold loosely. Just guide her arms and legs. Yes, Doctor. Don't be afraid, Mrs. Cunningham. And we also have run-ins with as close as the film gets to a baddie in the form of Nurse Davis. Now, de Havilland's performance through her care is nothing short of extraordinary. Her journey has many up and downs, from moments of apparent lucidity to then panic and terror, and de Havilland navigates all of them without ever seeming to be overly melodramatic. Sometimes the look of confusion on her face in the scene between her and her husband Robert go to the cinema perfectly captures Virginia's inner turmoil. 
and it's an interesting place to stage such a scene. We associate this cinema with enjoyment, a public space where people can lose themselves for a bit and enjoy a film. Virginia finds the experience terrifying, her fear coming from a deep place within. It isolates her from her surroundings, yet the scene is not presented as being hysterical. I think there's a deep sympathy in the camera work as we see her face in medium close-ups. It's uncomfortable and rightly you fear for her and want actively want for her to get better. A narration of sorts is also provided by Virginia, as we have given access to her inner monologues, and we can hear the discussions in her head, the desperation, the fear and the frustration. Why this helps is that Virginia is not claiming to be sane in a space surrounded by the insane. She's not battling the system, as it were. Moreover, she was trying to understand and come to terms with what is happening to her and why she's ill. It's not a film like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She's not the victim of an overstellar state or a punishing system. It's not out to get her. But there is a very clear tension in the film. The bureaucracy of the place could end up doing her a great deal of harm. Through poor paperwork, she's almost given electroshock therapy that she does not need. It's a system that is being critiqued. Where is the oversight of Nurse Davis making sure this doesn't happen? And one is forced to ask how many girls have been subjected to this treatment that they did not actually require. Eventually, Virginia ends up in level one, the titular snake pit that includes the film's most arresting visual sequence. Virginia describes the sensation of this place as feeling like she's at the bottom of the pit as the camera begins a track back, revealing her from above with the other inmates looking down at them like something like a well or obviously a pit as it is it's a horrible disconcerting image that belongs in a horror film and it's really also the scene of the film's most tragic moments all the women she meets in this hospital are beyond any hope of saving as doc and as dr kick walks through we see the huge scale of the issue who we wonder is looking out for them. Do they have a robber on the outside trying to help them? Now, some critics have stated that The Snake Pit was in fact quite a sexist film, seeing the purpose of Virginia's rehab essentially to mould her into a more subservient wife. I think it's a quite a harsh criticism. I see her journey as more as a character overcoming what was at the time a greatly misunderstood problem. And of course, through modern eyes, her treatment, especially the psychoanalysis, may raise a few eyebrows as to its effectiveness. But lest we forget, this is a film that takes place in a world of film logic. Livtuck's direction keeps the film checked and it never feels bombastic, preachy or overly melodramatic. And the more I watched it, the more impressed I became by it. De Havilland's performance is superb, although she didn't win the Oscar that year despite being nominated, is one of her best and I would contest one of my favourite of her performances. And this isn't just her film, it seem, seems like it's been made up of universally great components. The supporting cast, the script, the direction, the set design, for me, helped create an unforgettable cinematic experience. And The Snake Pit really did strike a chord at the time as well. This was a huge hit. And there have been claims that the film actually forced states to radically change how they cared for patients. And when it was actually shown in the UK, it was shown with a, it was presented with a warning to assure viewers this was not what British hospitals were like. Crucially, I think the snake pit endures because it offers hope. Virginia undergoes a journey of recovery over the course of the film. Overridingly, I think it's a supportive film. It says to people in that situation, 
that you can be helped, that there are ways you can get through these problems. And I think in these times, it's more relevant than ever for a film to be saying something like that. Diego nació en un lugar muy difícil, la parte más pobre de la ciudad capital. A mí la pelota era el juguete más lindo que había. Esa era mi salvación. No la falta Maradona, la falta Diego. Con Diego iría hasta el fin del mundo. Pero con Maradona... So next up was Asif Kapedia's Diego Maradona. A car races down the streets in Naples. The footage is poor quality VHS. An 80s disco pumps on the soundtracks. It's a chaotic, thrillingly overwhelming opening sequence. What is behind this madness? Well, the occupant of the car, as we see, is none other than Diego Maradona. Signed from Barcelona for a world record fee of £7 million to head to Italy, which was, at the time, the richest and best league in world football. Only Maradona was not signing for the league's most prestigious teams. It was none of the Milans or the old lady of the league, Juventus. He was instead signing for a complete opposite. Napoli, based in the Italian city of Naples, located in southern Italy, it was one of the poorest cities in Italy and indeed Europe. Mocked relentlessly by northern Italians, the people of Naples were labelled as being carriers of cholera or peasants, and its population channelled their frustration and hopes into Napoli. Yet the club gave them scant return. Napoli were a team that hadn't won anything in years, and with very little funds, the chance of the team ever doing anything seemed remote. Meanwhile, Barcelona had finally had enough of its star player Maradona, culminating in his causing a mass brawl against Atletico Bilbao in the Copa del Rey final. Somehow, and from somewhere, Napoli managed to find £7 million, a world record fee to make Maradona come to their unfashionable and unsuccessful club. How and where this money came from, one can only wonder, but it serves as one of the most intriguing chapters in the history of football. Asifkopedia is a rare type of director in that he's an auteur of the documentary medium. Like Ken Burns, he has a recognisable style and thematic throughline through his choice of subjects. His two most notable works before Maradona were the Et Senna film, obviously Senna, and Amy, the documentary about Amy Winehouse. Two very tragic tales of sportsmen and artists seemingly destined for immortality for all the wrong reason, with the latter Amy being one of the most harrowing films I have ever seen. In both Senna and Amy, I was surprised at how effectively I was drawn into the stories, having no interest in Formula One and not being overly fussed about the music of Winehouse. And it is use of archival footage which I think achieved this. By reframing existing footage to capture a certain look from one of his subjects, or seeing an internationally recognised star casually staring at their phone, this was particularly touching in Amy, as we saw behind the feeding frenzy of media attention as the papers snapped away, Capedia showed us a girl who three minutes before had been shooting heroin with her addict husband, 
desperately trying to manage the burden of fame. Now, Maradona feels like an apt subject for Capelia. He has the godlike status of Senna and the vices of Winehouse. And by focusing on this period in Maradona's career, you get a fairly satisfying glimpse into the madness and the genius of this deeply divisive figure. Born in abject poverty, the younger Diego quickly proved his genius as a football player. His small height and stature gave him a unique talent due to his low centre of gravity and the ability to glide around the opposition and find himself perfectly positioned to slot the ball home. At Barcelona, we see glimpses of this genius and then the other side of Madonna, Maradona, the crazy. During one incident, Maradona causes a riot with players and fans and coaches, everyone getting stuck in. And the young Diego at the centre of it all, kicking and punching the opposition, sometimes even his own supporters. Now, sitting four rows back in the cinema made me realise one thing during these moments. This is a film that needs to be seen on the biggest screen possible with the loudest sound system to, to boot. This is due to the fact that a great deal of foley work has been done in post-production and all those kicks and punches were accompanied by resounding thuds and booms. With all the footage being archival, ranging from film to low-res VHS, I found it even more surprising that the film felt so cinematic. Maradona at Barcelona didn't seem like you were watching some upstart kid. There was a palpable sense that despite being on the short side, Maradona seemed like a cinematic icon. Inevitably, Maradona ends up being sold to Napoli, and it's here we find him having to deal with reality. He gets the budget version of everything he asked for, a small apartment, a crappy car, and then there's the team. Napoli simply aren't that good, and despite being in the richest league in the world, the team struggle to keep up with like the Milan teams and the Juventuses. And I think it's worth saying now, you don't have to like football to enjoy this film. Maradona is far more than this, and for anyone who has seen the excellent Sunderland Till I Die documentary on Netflix, you will see the effect and how football has on a community, and this can be an immensely profound, I think, and moving experience. What the film does so well is present Maradona as more than just a player to the people of Naples. He is a reason to believe, a reason to find pride in their place. And it's not long before they come to see him as a real-life messiah. And obviously, celebrity is a recurring theme in Capedia's work. And in all cases, the relationship between fame and the general public is far from healthy. Amy Winehouse seemed the perfect star for the social media age. She could be turned into unpleasant memes, snapped by passers-by, looking for selfies, and to picture in some state of inebriation. And we could all do this through the devices in our hands. She was very real, and indeed a very modern tragedy that the public lapped up from beginning to end. Senna was seemingly destined to become a martyr, a bridge between the present and the past, giving his life so that others could be safe, and the fans adored him for it. Maradona is what happens when hope collides with reality, and like some form of tragic Italian opera, Maradona the person ends up destroying Maradona the god. Capedia lets the images speak for themselves. On the pitch, he is mesmerising, leaving oppositions for dead who, despite their best attempts to remove his knees from his legs, cannot get near him. Soon, Napoli are league champions, the city of the great unwashed, giving their bragging rights over the, the league's other teams. 
that have teased them so cruelly over the years. Yet off the pitch, Maradona begins to show his other side. The film managed to capture the aforementioned character moments so well. He did Maradona, to me at least, always seems slightly afraid of the world around him. As he poses with gangster, he is a man who maybe is too dumb to know the true extent of such affiliations, but of sound mind to know the power of having friends in such high places. He never really ever looks comfortable. The odd lingering shot would seem to suggest he is not exactly sure of what's going on. But I did feel like I was never really getting to know Maradona. He seemed to be an enigma throughout. And just worth pointing out as well, we never actually see him being interviewed in a modern setting. We hear he, he clearly has been interviewed because we can hear his voice narrating on what's going on. But there was a kind of distance I felt between me and the subject. Now, for me, this came to the point where we got to the infamous hand of God part of his career. And I wasn't really sure if I actually believed him when, when he was talking about the game. Was he simply scoring an easy win with his fans or was he in fact that politically aware and angry to see the game as a way of playing out world affairs on the confines of a football pitch? He is, I think, quite an unreliable narrator in this film and I for one actually quite enjoyed this as I could never really be sure if Maradona was some kind of evil twisted genius or a bit of adult merely playing a character. Certainly, Naples comes to love him even more and as the film progresses you begin to see that the player in the city were quite a natural fit. The fight we see at Barcelona was called, we are led to believe, by Maradona being the subject of racist remarks due to his father's Native American ancestry. And now Maradona isn't the type of person to take his of the chin, moreover he'll smash yours in. Yet Maradona can't escape the vices of Naples. And as the drugs begin to take hold, the private life soon begins to take f- to affect what's happening on the pitch. With the city worshipping him, the man begins to wander. The affairs and the rumours all slowly arrayed away the, f- the fa- fanatical appreciation the locals have for him. The downfall is complete in Italian 90, when the semi-final between Italy and Argentina is to take place in Naples. Suggesting the locals support Argentina because of all that he has done for them, Maradona seemingly forgets himself. This may be a god, but no god is bigger than the club. And while he's being booed in the final of the 90 World Cup, Maradona mouths the word motherfuckers. God has seemingly forgotten his place, it would seem. Now, whereas Amy and Senna felt tragic, Maradona didn't to me. And I think it's because footballers are sometimes hard to feel sorry for. In a game that often feels like a soap opera, it's surprising how quickly a player can go from hero to zero, sign for the wrong team, score a goal and celebrate in a way, and very quickly the knives will come out. And a cursory glance at a player's salary somehow makes it all okay to despise that once cherished hero. Maradona's fall is completely of his own creation, arrogance, ego, and were I able to make up my mind to his actual level of intelligence, I might be able to possibly find a shred of sympathy for him. Yet unlike Amy and Senna, this film does not end with the death of its subject. Instead, we have a bloated and clearly emotional Maradona crying on national television in a chat show sometime around 2008, I believe it was. His life had become a mess of drug and scandal. 
It's a kind of tragic sight, yet these images are blighted by history for me. Maradona is still in the eyes of this nation a cheating disgrace, the hand of God being the ultimate in sporting injustice. Surely we would have won the World Cup had he not had done that. I don't think we probably would have, but it's nice to think that we might have done. And instantly I recalled how I felt when I first saw Amy. That film left me deeply affected. Despite knowing the ending of the film, it still hit me hard. And I think that's the culture we live in. Winehouse was a figure of fun of the media. And to agree, we lapped it up, calling her a mess. And I'm ashamed to admit, I once speculated with a friend whether it be her or Pete Doherty who would die first. And in retrospect, that's a disgusting thing to think or even say. But look at the film I'm Still Here, Casey Affleck and... Joaquin Phoenix's mockumentary, how many people actually try and help him? Instead, they just mock him. And now whatever we think about that film, it's a depressing spectacle and critique of celebrity culture. As I watched Maradona crying, a shadow of his former self, I felt nothing for him. Mexico 86 lingers on, but it seems I had perhaps not learned one of the lessons from Amy. He was a man addicted to a drug, clearly struggling with his demons. And despite being archive footage from this interview it does give the film a coda and perhaps was a reminder that Maradona was indeed just a mortal and perhaps just perhaps it was time to see him as a person as opposed to the breaker of footballing hearts and as a football fan and a good old-fashioned yarn Maradona is a treat for the eyes. The footage Wikipedia has assembled veers from a lo-fi version of The Sopranos to an almost gladiator type epic and of course helped by one of the most divisive characters ever to grace the game. All too often these types of films veer from art house pretension, see Zidane, to the overly sentimental, see the George Best documentary. And Maradona has sophisticated trashiness to it. The images of him disco dancing, the buxom girls ogling, the gangsters and the scenes of debauchery. But it also feels like Peter never really gets to the heart of the man. And strangely, it felt quite superficial to me in many ways. Whereas I found myself rooting and indeed mourning for Senna and Winehouse, I felt this film had just been one long, enjoyable ride. And I haven't really thought about it a great deal since. And maybe that's not a bad thing. I might just be being greedy as there's nothing wrong with enjoying myself for two hours. But I still want to know a little more about Maradona. A genius, yes. An idiot, possibly, too. For some, though, he is an icon for reasons I can perfectly understand. And for others who watch the 86 World Cup, he is a villain of Shakespearean proportions. Either way, I think there's more to this story. Okay, so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. You can find me on Twitter at 24 Framescast. You can find me at 24Framescast.blogspot.com. You can also find me at the MOC cast. Um, that's mastercinemacast.blogspot.com um, you can get in contact with me with Facebook or via email at 24framescast at gmail.com uh, many thanks for listening and I will be in contact soon bye